Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. It is Friday. We've got to the end of the week. In one piece, unless, of course, you're Owen Patterson. Uh, right, coming up on today's episode, do you want to live forever? Really, really interesting this. There's been lots of talk about uh, the technology of extending our lives. You know, your Jeff Bezoses are all investing in, you know, trying to find the elixir of life. So I've spoken to a really fascinating guy called Professor Richard Farager, all about the science of living forever and what that might mean for politics and tax and spend and looking after old people and all that. So that's really, really interesting. That's our big thing which is coming up. But first, the Columnist panel and it's for Friday. So it must be Melanie Reid and James Forsyth. Morning, Matt. How you doing? I'm very good. I'm very good. Slightly better than basically anyone in the Tory party this morning. Um, Apart from Angela Richardson. Angela, well, yes, at least she's, although, yes, I suppose at least she's, there are, I suppose there's about a dozen of them, isn't there, who've got some, you know, they've got some principled. She's the, Angela Richardson, of course, is the one who was sacked for rebelling on the vote, but then when the government rebelled on itself, she got her job back. Um, you've written about this today in your column, James. Uh, but <laughs> of all of Boris Johnson's many problems, the next one is, de- is going to be dealing with, across the board, cabinet ministers, mini- junior ministers, ministerial aides, backbenchers, 2019ers, veteran long-timers, red wall, blue wall, urban, rural, they're all really cross, aren't they? Yeah, because this was obvious. Sometimes in politics, an issue flares up or uh, there's some kind of unexpected reaction to something. I mean, I think think what lots of people feel from the cabinet down is, how did they think people were going to react to Tory MPs seeking to upend the rules to stay a guilty verdict against one of their own MPs? It, it was it was obvious the political problems uh, that they were they were heading towards, and it was also obvious that if you tried to rewrite the rules and then invited Labour and the Liberal Democrats and the SNP to join you after you pushed the thing through on a party line vote, they were going to say no. And I think that's I think the predictability of it is what's annoyed people, and the fact that people couldn't quite see what it was what it was and i think that the anger is because you know on 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 tuesday and wednesday there were delegations of backbenchers going to the whip saying look this is clearly going to end really badly for everyone and people pointing out that you know if owen paston had just taken the suspension this issue would have kind of gone away it would have been a kind of frankly been a page five story given everything that's happened to him it's highly unlikely there would have been a recall petition and everyone could have moved on instead they were choosing to kind of push this right to the top of the agenda and so i I think there is a lot of anger this morning and i think people will you know and i think people also look at uh this u-turn i think well next time i'm told i've got to vote for something that's what boris johnson wants um people will 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 think twice about that people will will exercise their own judgment more Uh, and that 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 will make the tory party more difficult to whip and more difficult to manage what have you made of this melanie i mean for those of us on on the, the inside of the westminster bubble it has been hilariously bad uh, what? <laughs> how has it seemed to you? 
very, uh, I mean, the, the, it's the tinnieredness of it that uh, astonishes me. The sort of the hubris, like like James was saying, had he just quietly accepted it and gone away, but instead he he voted for himself, as did nineteen others who'd all had their collars felt by the the standards commissioner. I mean, it, it, you know, it it, it you, you don't have to be in the political bubble to think. This is crazy behavior, and it, it, it's no wonder that that Labour's Labour's lead Labour Labour's now within a point um, in the Times the Times poll this morning. It, uh, no wonder that, that there is this absolute sheer vitriol and fury that that Red Box was talking about this morning. Some of the the Red Wall MPs that have is it Christian Wakeford? He has four hundred. He has a, a majority of four hundred and two. You know, he he he, he apparently confronted. Um, Owen Patterson, and you've you've got a feel for these people because it's um, in the real world, um, it's madness. And James, the big risk is that once uh, MPs get either a taste of rebellion or realise that they can go against the government, oh, maybe they should sometimes so they don't end up looking ridiculous, or, you know, speak out subsequently. We've had some, you know, normally with these stories... Everything is off the record. There's a fair amount of off the record around the place. But there's quite a lot of Tory MPs going on the record, named, criticising the number 10 operation, the chief whip, the prime minister. Um, and that's once it, that's very hard to get the sort of genie back in the bottle, isn't it? Yes. And also, it's hard to say, trust us after you've um, after you've told people to kind of compromise themselves and then reverse themselves, then, then reverse the position, you know, less than 24 hours later. And I mean, that that is the difficulty. But the difficulty that, you know, trust us, you know, we're experienced, we've seen this stuff before, our judgment's right. You know, people will, will, will be much more sceptical of those claims in future. I also think it, it raises another question. I think it, it, it raises the issue of how well the Whip's office no, the parliamentary party. I don't think there was any idea that they were only going to get 252 Tory MPs to vote for it. And I think it also suggests that they were massively misled by uh, a big lobbying campaign from Owen Patterson's old friends uh, th- th- without really realising that how many of these new MPs, the 2017 intake, the 2019 intake, just could see that this was madness. And I think this is, this is a real question here. How well, you know, government in many ways, in, when it comes to managing parliament, it, it works off this triangle of number 10 and the prime minister, the leader of the House of Commons and the chief whip. All three of those um, got the mood of the parliamentary party badly wrong. And I suppose the other thing, uh, James, is that, that um, Mark, I mean, Mark Spencer, the chief whip, has been in the Commons for, su- for some time. Uh, and, you know, is part of that crowd. And like you said, you've got your Andrea Leadsoms and your Owen Pattersons and your David Otis. But almost a third of the Conservative Parliamentary Party was only elected in 2019. You've got the chunk of elected in 2017. You know, there's a, there's a big gulf between those who were around, frankly, when Owen Patterson was in the cabinet uh, and those who basically don't know who he is, apart from the bloke who said something about the badgers moving the goalposts. Um, and it's a real misunderstanding of the Parliamentary Party if if they thought that, that you know, your Andrea Leadsoms and your David Davises were the ones who were holding sway. Yeah, uh, completely. And I also think, to be fair, some of those older intakes, you know, 
people could tell that this was going to cause trouble. You know, Graham Brady, you know, the shop steward of Tory MPs, you know, he was saying last week, look, if you're going to do this, you've got to do this via a speaker's commission so that no one party is in charge and you can kind of proceed on the basis of kind of cross-party consensus. And, and that advice was ignored. I mean, I just think that, you know, I think the chief whip had this idea that you could just kind of steamroll this through. Uh, and, Thanks for citing them out in your week, then. You can read them both the in the Times every week. A, just on get a yourself a digital subscription. Go to the Times. Is it is it do you think though that the, the paucity of the opposition which has has Completely. really bred has bred this, this yeah. complacency? Yeah, I mean, I, I think Melanie is totally right. Normally, what would stop the government from doing something like this is a kind of fear of the hay that the opposition would make with it. But I think that I think the problem is that that Labour just don't really feature in their calculations. I mean, they're not scared of what of what of what you know Keir Starmer is going to do. And so, some of you know, Quentin Hogg warned years ago that you know the danger in Britain is because of the way that the executive controls the legislature that you can kind of lurch into an elective dictatorship and I think that risk is particularly real when the opposition is as weak as it is today. Um, just to give you a little sneak preview of my column in the Times tomorrow I've been looking back through uh, the polling for the last 18 months and every time Keir Starmer's gone into isolation he's done it five times now every time he's done that uh, Labour have gone up in the polls uh, <laughs> so the answer, I think, is to keep him indoors permanently, and therefore, you know, he'll be prime minister by Christmas. Um, <laughs> so make of that, make of that what you will. Um, uh, Manly, let's talk about the story that um, you've pulled out this way. It's absolutely fascinating. This the story of uh, a, a, a medical student, uh, Ross Smith, who has been awarded a huge amount of money. Um, uh, or he's claiming £200,000 in damages after a friend failed to stop him falling and he, he ended up being left paralysed. Yeah, do you know, it's one of these sort of absolute sh- shockers for risk sport because um, there's, always, there's always this understanding that it's a dangerous sport, you're all in it together. And I, don't, I can't remember ever anyone suing anybody for not sort of not supporting them when they fell. Um, do you remember the Touching the Void book that was totally yeah. famous? Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, every, everyone read it, even 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 uh, you even got your children to read it. It was that good a book. And, um, you know, the, the guy had cut the rope in order to save his own life, and that led to um, the guy who wrote the book being... being but he didn't sue him. You know, it was just... That's the hard graft of mountaineering. This accident happened on a, a, um, a climbing wall. Um, I'm just, I, I just, it saddens me. I mean, it's desperately sad, obviously, what happened to, to, the, to the man, but desperately sad that it's become a personal um, action rather than just suing the, wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be easier to sue the, the, the climbing wall and to, to, to take it away from person, personalizing it? Uh, implications for for dangerous sports are enormous in this. Very sad, and also just f- friendship and um, the idea of you know presumably set out on the start of the day to have a fun day out, and then you know ends up with yeah. one friend suing another. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a breakdown in the. I mean, it's all about the tr- it, it, mountaineering is about trust, based on trust, and uh, when that goes, it's. Uh, yeah, very. I hope. I hope it's a one-off. Yeah, so, yeah. So it's a terrible, um, uh, terrible story. That um, let's let, let's round off uh, with something a bit lighter. I wonder where where you both stand on pantos. 
Are you a fan of pantos, James? Yeah, I haven't, I haven't been for years, but panto, panto is always good fun, I think. Um, any particular favourites, either of you? It's got to be Jack and the Beanstalk. Jack and the Beanstalk, of course it has. Uh, what about you, Melody? Oh, I like Cinderella. Cinderella is spelled with a C and not an S. Can I just say that? Um, you know, because in Scotland, you, you ought to know that Scotland is the home of pantos. Scotland is the kind of spiritual home that of pantos. That sounds like the sort of thing which is going to start a row. <laughs> I, no, I, I, I will stand by this. They have this, they are supremely disgusting, but not in the sort of overtly disgusting way. And um, they, they, children still go, and all the jokes are over the children's head. And it, it yeah, I, I, I think that um, we can safely say the Scots know how to put on a dirty show which is not alienating of five year olds. Well, that's basically what you want. That's I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm, such a Perfect. Massive, I'm such a massive fan of Panto. James will start a Monday week, then you're with both in the Times every week. Just get yourself a digital subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. Now, do you want to live forever? When the world's billionaires aren't firing their money into space, they're spending it on longevity labs and reversing the ageing process. It's the stuff of science fiction. But is it becoming science fact? Is it even possible to live forever, and would you want to? One man who knows is Richard Farager, Professor of Gerontology at the University of Brighton. Let's start by just pointing out that forever is, as we scientists say, a bugger of a long time. Okay, It is about all the time there is. So when somebody says, you know, I want to live forever, I often sit there and think, do you really want to live another 20 billion years because that's how long physicists think the universe has got and that's a good working definition of forever and quite often when people talk about you know living forever what i think they are they really think is i don't want to think about dying can you do something about that for me so what do we even mean then when we talk about aging so that we can compare humans to other species if I wanted to find out if a species showed ageing or not, and a new one unknown to science, I would take a population of those animals, for example, and I would put them in a protected environment, give them plenty of food and things, and I would just look at how many of them died over time. 
And if they were a species that showed aging, I would see this gradual but then very rapid increase in the number of them dying from inside, you know, even though nothing much was happening to them, apparently in terms of external threats. And to put some kind of human numbers on this, if you look, when my son was 10, his chance of dying in the next 10 years was a fraction of 1%. My dad, when he was 75, had a chance of dying in the next 10 years of about 40%. And that is what it means to be a member of a species that shows aging. You have this what we call exponential increase in your chance, but not just of dying, but of actually being ill for a long time before you do so. This is, this is something we call the Gompertz relationship. And everybody who's ever bought life insurance has kind of been a victim of the Gompertz relationship <laughs> because that's what the guys pretty much, there are lots of tweaks on it. That's what they're using to calculate your premiums. What's my age again? What's my age again? The question is, is this unique to humans? Do all creatures age in the same way? Or could we learn something from other species about the key to longevity? This isn't universal in nature. It's very, very common, though. But there are a few species that we know about that show a fixed low chance of death throughout their lives. You could think of them as having sort of a Gompertz flat line. And if you've ever had clam chowder, you've eaten these. These animals have a very low chance of death. They show a Gompertz flat line, and the oldest quay hogs are so old that Shakespeare could have had them in a bowl of stew. What makes the humble clam so special when it comes to ageing? They're really complicated organisms in kind of biosphere terms. They have muscles, a nervous system, a gut, and they can keep all these in perfect working order for 400 years or more. I love eating clam chowder. Does that mean I will live forever as a result? No, no, you've probably got as much chance of that as saying I really love jade, so I should eat that and then I'll be difficult to damage. Uh, <laughs> you, you are what you eat, but only up to a point. Um, I'm sorry, you know. But on the plus side, at least you're not eating chicken and running around flapping the feathers for it. What can we learn then in the, and there are all these stories where it's Larry Page from Google or Jeff Bezos, you know, from Amazon who seem, well, we know he's got more money than sense, but, you know, if he's not setting off rockets, he seems to be spending money on, on scientists trying to reverse the aging process, if you like. When people then talk about not necessarily living forever, but living for longer or at least living more healthily, is that a question of looking at the clam and working out how we can be more like the clam? Now, the, the clam is kind of right on the horizon, that, and it illustrates some of these things from biology, illustrate a couple of fundamental points about how ageing is put together. So the clam kind of shows us that there's no evolutionary constraint that says you can't build a body that lasts a really long time. Another example drawn from biology is if you look at the lifespans of, for example, bats and mice. Now, mice are every predator's sort of favorite junk food in the wild, just to ask your cat. And they have a lifespan of about two years. 
a bat basically is a glorified mouse that's learned to hang glide. And these animals are really long-lived. The North American little brown bat has a lifespan of about 20 years. What you can take away from that is you can build a small furry body that can last a really long time. And there are evolutionary reasons around why bats live a long time, why mice don't. What has come through as a kind of quiet revolution in over the last 20 years, which is fueling some of the interest and optimism at the minute, is we've been very, very successful at unpicking what we think of as the major mechanisms that act to keep organisms healthy. And the problems that we think of as aging or age-related diseases are the manifestations of those mechanisms starting to fail. And this is tremendously hopeful because what it suggests is if we can take some of the knowledge that we've gained in simple animals such as flies and worms in the laboratory and studies on human cells and tissues and tissue culture environments and translate that into better medicines or better lifestyle interventions, what we can do is ensure that more people live healthier longer into their lives, which is good for everybody. Clowns have a slightly less exciting life than human beings, but also actually bats and mice. If we evolved into the, hu- the way that humans have evolved, we have more exciting lives. We can do more things with our bodies, but that is also partly why we then die. I, I must be honest, my first thought at that point is maybe clams are absolutely riveted by their existence. <laughs> you know, if you can get a you, this could be a moment for you. You could be the first person on media to interview shellfish and see what they think about the problem. <laughs> um, We've done I, worse, I, I think. I, I don't think that that's, I don't really think that, that, that's, that that's the case. Under the sea, under the sea. There are, though, some anti-aging mechanisms which seem to be concentrated in certain species. As much as 40 years ago, scientists started playing with the genes of some creatures with remarkable results. We first started to look at this really in the 1980s, when scientists started to mutate single genes in flies, for example, or also little worms, and you found you got these really big increases in lifespan, 70, 80, 100%. And the reason these animals were living much longer was they weren't getting sick. And where there's been all the work in the intervening period is having a novel mutation is a bit like owning a piece of alien technology. You know what the damn thing does, but you don't know how it works. And there's a lot of, you know, so imagine you've got something off a shot down UFO. Okay, it's great. I pointed at a wall and the wall disappears. The next 20 years is going to be me taking bits and pieces of it apart, trying to work out how it does that particular conjuring trick. And we've actually been very successful with this. 
not just with some of the mechanisms that were first found in flies and worms, but mechanisms that look like really good candidates for causing aging in higher organisms like mammals, like us, one of which I happen to work on, something known as cellular senescence. And one of the big, I think, wins of the last few years has been the demonstration that if you start to interfere with that health maintenance mechanism and boost it up a bit, what you can see is animals that live much longer, they're much healthier. This was first done in mice. And so, for, you know, some of the data that I like with these animals concerns, of all things, wheel running. So if you take mice and let them age, they will gradually start to fill up with these things we call senescent cells, and they do bad stuff. If you're able to remove them, then what happens is the animal is much healthier. And then what does that mean in practice? How do you measure that? My favourite piece of data about that is just these animals running on a wheel. If you take the senescent cells away, these mice with the cells removed run about twice as far and twice as fast. as. And if you were able to transfer that into a human situation, it's the difference between having to sell your home, having to move into long-term care, all those problems that we try not to talk about, but we all know are coming. And if not to us, we're dealing with it with our parents. And being able to live independently in your own home, jog down to get the paper every morning and wish the young people would hurry up and get out of the way because I've got places to go. And that's going to be the big challenge. And on some level, that's what's inspiring not just the kind of more speculative startup company that's making the running in the newspapers, the Bezos type things, but also governments both here and in America starting to take very serious looks at what's going on. The countries that first start to make the running in this new science of improving later life are going to be enormously well placed to own 21st century healthcare because we are living in this we are living in a century where for the first time by the middle of this century there will be more old people that's people over the age of 65 than children on earth for the first time in the history of humanity and being old isn't a problem being old and sick is and the more we can do to improve the health of everybody in later life, we'll save money and we'll end up with more happy people. That's the game plan. Still to come, what does all this mean in practice? Are we going to have to take an anti-aging pill so we can keep up with the young people? Find out next. It's Matt Jolly on Times Radio in association with Mastercard Strive, empowering small businesses for a digital future. Keep on running. Naturally, on Times Radio, speaking to Richard Farager, the Professor of Gerontology at the University of Brighton, about the prospect of living forever. 
The key, it seems, is removing the senescence genes which make us age. Removing senescent cells in the mice was done by what we call creating transgenic mice. So these mice were special. They were made from single fertilized eggs and they carried a little gene in them that allowed us to remove the senescent cells. Now, you can't do that with people. The question has been, can we find drugs or natural compounds that remove senescent cells or block their bad effects? And it turns out that we can. Several of these have been found already that kill senescent cells. These have been used in a couple of clinical trials to date, just small scale. This is the very start. And there have been some positive effects on a couple of diseases. One of them is diabetic kidney disease. The other is one that has a long name. The alternative, <laughs> and my laboratory has actually done this, is you can find small molecules that stop cells being senescent and allow them to function relatively normally again. And this is just the beginnings of a set of approaches to try and make senescent cells behave properly or get rid of them if they don't. And if in this you know, time in the, the distant future where, where it is possible to do this in here, or may, maybe this has already happened with mice, it's basically you live a lovely life and then you drop dead instead of declining, or is there still some decline at the end? What we know is that whatever happens will be one of two alternatives, both of which are better than now. Either you will get what we refer to in the trade as compression of morbidity, which is, you know, maximum, you know, lifespan is about 80, average lifespan is about 85, and you spend about the last 10 years, shall we say, in ill health. If you compress morbidity, you spend, you know, you have a lifespan of 85 and you spend about the last 10 minutes in ill health or, you know, the, the last year or two. So you have extended the period that you are healthy. The other potential thing that could happen is you could keep the period that you spend ill the same five or 10 years, but add 15 or 20 years to healthy life. And we refer to that as extended lifespan. What we don't see, oddly enough, is the one that everybody worries about from politicians to the man on the street, where, oh, I don't know, you know, you double the lifespan but all of that extra time is spent with arthritis. That just doesn't happen. And actually, if one thinks about it for two minutes, it would be highly unlikely if it did, because what we already know from our studies on flies and worms and mice is that the animals live much longer because they're much healthier. Unhealthy things don't tend to live for a long time. From a sort of political perspective, there's always been lots of talk about how you know the chance of a child born today is going to live to a hundred. But actually, if what you're doing is rather than just adding on more and more years of sitting at home in retirement, you're you know there's been a lot of debate about raising the pension age and so on. But actually, what you're doing is potentially keeping people 
fitter for longer, which means they're economically active. So you try to redress some of the issues around a, a smaller group of younger people trying to look after a not very yep. well larger group of older people. The likely effects of this are going to be entirely economically benign. There have only been a couple of studies done of this, but they're really encouraging. If we were able to translate just a small amount of the lifespan and health span improvements that we see in animals into people, the US healthcare system saves about $7 trillion by 2050. Now, for me, and you know, I'm a scientist, that's still a number too large to have any meaning. If you pay older people the entitlements they are due, that eats up about $4 trillion of that, and it leaves you with about $3 trillion. That is enough to give everybody on this planet clean drinking water for about 30 years. It's about 43% of all the gold that's ever mined. And it's 0.1% of global wealth. And that is just improving the US healthcare system. Imagine if you rolled it out into all of the others. And the key thing that has to be stressed here is if we don't do this, we're going to have to spend those trillions of dollars anyway looking after sick older people. For experts in gerontology and the ageing process like Richard Farager, this is what keeps him up at night. Well, I worry about our work not succeeding because if it doesn't succeed, we as a society will be placed in a situation where we have to spend more money than ever before to keep more people than ever before in a condition where they're more miserable than ever before. And I have real trouble seeing that as a win professionally. So where do you sign up? How do we get to live longer, healthier lives? Is it injections, scans, tablets or drinking from the elixir of life? What it would mean in practice is better medicines. I know that the, I know it sounds it sounds rather odd, but Whenever you start to talk about, you know, extending lifespan or improving later life health, I think the 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 kind of science fiction tropes start to run riot in people's <laughs> brains. And I, I skip down gaily and say, "Good morning, Matt. Did you remember to take your immortality pill today?" Exactly. That. That's what I'm. That, yeah, that yeah. is that is emphatically not what's going to happen. And again, this is one of those things that we all know from our lived experience but we don't put it forward nobody gives you medicines until you're sick i'm hypertensive there would have been no point in giving me hypertension medicine until i developed hypertension and taking it's a pain but my life with my hypertension medicine is 50 times better and it's longer than my life without it and this is what we're going to be seeing much better drugs to deal with conditions for which we can do little or nothing today. Some of these drugs could be relatively cheap and available relatively quickly. Some of the effects that we have been seeing are using existing drugs that are off patent and are available in every pharmacy in this country. What's needed is much better linkage between the fundamental scientific community that has been developing the breakthroughs and the clinical 
and health professional arm that's going to have to actually implement them. That, that's the first thing. And the other thing, I think, is a sustained push on getting more and better medicines through. And if we get that, then the future is really pretty sunny. And if we don't, it will be the reverse. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. <laughs>